Good morning, everybody. Um, I just want to review something real quickly. You know, uh, the hymn that the, we sing for our Sunday school opening, I'm Baptized into Christ, that hymn extols what we learn from Matthew 28, 19. So when God gives you his name in holy baptism, that means God gives himself to you. So, for example, when you're baptized in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus then gives himself to you and everything that belongs to him here on the cross. So the hymn, that last that second stanza that we sang, sprinkling me with Jesus' blood, really? Yes, when Jesus gives you his name, his divine and saving name, he gives you himself and what he won for you on the cross. So when you're baptized, the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to you. Why? Because you're baptized in his name. Okay, that's very important. And just pushing this forward, uh, when you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives himself to you and everything that belongs to him. So are you full of the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. How do you know that? I am, I am baptized. That's the answer. All right. And so you have to believe that based upon God's word and promises. If you look, if you look to yourself, so if Kuhlman looks at himself, Kuhlman concludes, and so do you, it's real easy, he's not full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but, but you have to believe this based upon God's word and promise. Now, last week we looked at Isaiah, and we looked, uh, if you've got your sheet. Pastor, yes, please. It says, with Jesus' blood, that's correct. And, and you were talking about, it doesn't really matter if Okay. Right. And okay. So we have two things going on here with the Levites. This has to do with the worship of Israel and has nothing to do with baptism, because Jesus doesn't institute Christian baptism until when Matthew twenty-eight, when he's risen from the dead. So these are two things going on. So with the Levites in Numbers being sprinkled for cleansing, it was so that they could do their work. They were priests in the house of God. So in order to come into God's presence in the Old Testament, you had to be cleansed or holied. And that's what's going on here. So they could come into the presence of the Lord and do their work without being like a light, a, a match thrown on gasoline. What happens? God's holy. And if you're not cleansed or holied and you come into his presence, it's like throwing a match on gasoline. So that's what's going on there. So they can do their work. Now, continuing with that theme, we then, because we are washed, baptized, and cleansed with Jesus' blood, we too now are a holy and royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. And so we can now come into God's presence completely and fully without being destroyed because he has sprinkled us with Christ's blood and therefore the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. 
So what you reference with the Levites is like a prophecy or a foretaste of what God will give all of His people in holy baptism. And we can all then... So whereas in the Old Testament, the high priest could go... Oh, he was the only one once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's in the book of Leviticus. All the rest of the Israelites had to be outside. Outside, gathered around the the tabernacle or the temple. But when Jesus comes, who is our great high priest, and his body is the curtain, if you will, this is Hebrews chapter 10, we have access to God the Father completely and totally, or put it this way, into the Holy of Holies, which is heaven itself, through the body of Christ, which is the curtain, Hebrews says, which that's how you have entree into the Holy of Holies, to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you're sprinkled with his blood. So are you, can you go to God into his presence? Yes, you can because you are baptized. And it isn't just a church, it's all your life. All your life you have complete and total access to God through Jesus Christ. That's why when you're you're not a church, you pray, and as you pray in the name of Jesus, you're you're in the very presence of God the Father, you're in the Holy of Holies. Because Jesus takes us on his back, if you will, and carries us there and says, here they are. Here's what they're praying for, Father. Listen to them because of my blood that I sprinkled them with. So I hope that was helpful. Anything else? Now, let's, let's review. Isaiah 42, it's on your sheet, the, the first page. I, we had those first four verses of Isaiah 42, and then we looked at Isaiah 53, and it's all on your sheet. Anybody need a sheet? Okay. So remember verse 1 of Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, etc. That is fulfilled in Jesus. And just by way of review, remember last week we observed that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, many people are God's servants, okay? Like David and Moses, even unbelievers like King Cyrus or King Nebuchadnezzar. Even Israel as a nation, as a whole, was God's servant. But from Isaiah 42 to Isaiah 53, with four servant songs, from Isaiah 42 to 53, four servant songs, this is in direct reference to Jesus himself. And I wanted to point that out again. It bears repeating, all right? Because what's described here from Isaiah 42 and then climaxing in Isaiah 53 are things that Israel couldn't do, Moses couldn't do, David couldn't do, which is what? Atone for sin. (laughs) So this is a direct reference to Jesus. So look on your sheet, flip it over to page two, Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Now look at verse 5. David couldn't do this. Moses couldn't do this. The entire nation of Israel couldn't do this. And I'm talking about atoning for sin. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, namely our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. And upon him was the chastisement, that means the punishment, or the damnation that all of our sin deserves. He took that in his body, and that brings us peace. And the end of verse 5, with his wounds, we are healed. David couldn't do that, Moses couldn't do that, only Jesus. Question? What about them? Are they saved? Oh, yes. Yes, the question is, what about the people that live before Jesus? Are they saved? The answer is, if they believed in the promise of the coming Savior. So Abraham, 
Abraham was given a promise that he was going to have a descendant that would be the savior of the world, which was ultimately continuing the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God gave to Adam and Eve, that through Eve, her seed, a savior would come. Then God makes the same promise to Abraham. So the same promise is over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So to answer your question, Julie, in the Old Testament, God gives a promise. And the promise is to send the Savior, Jesus, who will suffer, die, and rise again. So if our timeline, and this is not a good one, but he died and rose again in 33 AD. So people who lived, for example, like 3000 BC or 1500 BC, are they saved? The question is, did they believe in the promise? Because you're saved by faith. Remember Paul, Romans 1, this is really big. I know some of you are rolling your eyes saying, yeah, we've heard this a million times, Reverend, but it bears repeating. Paul says in Romans 1 that the justified are saved, how? By faith. And he quotes the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk. Paul's point, and not only Romans 1, but the entire letter to the Romans is to prove that the Old Testament teaches that you are saved by faith in what? The promise of the coming Savior. So that to answer your question, Julie, the Old Testament believers are saved because they believed in the promise of the coming Savior. We live after the fact, right? We're in 2022 AD. How are we saved? No differently than Abraham, no different than Adam and Eve, David, Samuel, name them, Isaiah, we just simply believe that the promise is fulfilled. So faith saves. Why? Because it believes in the divine promise of Jesus. So faith doesn't believe in faith. Faith never looks to itself. Faith always looks outward to a divine promise from God that Jesus is the Savior and that he died for you and answered for all your sin. Is that helpful? There was another hand, I think. Yes, Tom, please. Yeah, the question is, who taught this in the Old Testament? Well, starting from the beginning, Adam was. Adam was the first teacher. He was the first pastor. Not only the head of his house and his family, but Adam was also the head of the church. From the very beginning, there, there was church in the beginning. You know this, don't you? Because God in the beginning was doing all the talking and the preaching. Read Genesis 1 and 2 very carefully. God's doing all the talking. And he gathers people around himself to listen to his word. That's church. So then Adam would have taught who? Eve and all their children. And guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us all their children, but you remember like in Genesis 4, it mentions two children of Adam and Eve. Remember? Cain and Abel. Adam would have taught those two boys about the coming promise. Okay, make sense? Well, one believed, the other didn't. Cain didn't believe, Abel did. And that's, that's explained even further in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. That it explicitly says that Abel believed the promise. Boom. Cain did not. And so guess where Cain began to hate his brother? At church. When they would offer their, their, their sacrifice of thanksgiving. Remember, Adam would teach them the word of God. He would preach the promise. And then what would they do in response? Well, they would give things in sacrificial thanksgiving. Well, Cain, went to, he just simply went through the motions. He didn't believe any of it, and so when he offered his sacrifice of, quote, thanksgiving, 
God did not accept it because he didn't believe. And it just carries forward. Seth would be another teacher in the Old Testament. Noah would be another teacher. And Noah is a great example to your, to your question about who would teach the unbelievers. Noah for decades preached in the promise that the promise was coming. And the world didn't believe it. And the other thing that Noah taught is you'd better repent because there's a flood coming. And if you don't repent and believe this promise, you're going to be destroyed in the flood and you're going to go to hell. And what did the world do? They laughed at him because he was building a ship on dry ground where there was no water. What an idiot he is. Okay, so that's just a quick way to answer your question. The priests in the Old Testament would do it as well. The prophets in the Old Testament would do all this as well. So Moses, even King David would do it. King David was, was responsible for teaching the Word of God. And one of the ways that King David did it is he gave us the Psalms. David wrote the bulk of the Psalms in the Old Testament. So, for example, Psalm 51, you might be aware of Psalm 51. David wrote that Psalm after he was absolved by Nathan the prophet, the pastor. Only an absolved sinner can write Psalm 51. That's all I'm going to say about that. You can check that on your own. If you're not a believer, Number one, if you don't believe you're a sinner and if you don't believe that you're forgiven for the coming Savior's sake, King David, then you can never write Psalm 51 because David tells the truth about himself. What's the first truth about King David in Psalm 51, especially verse 5? From the very moment of my conception and from, from the very time of my birth, I am a what? <laughs> I'm a sinner. Only an absolved believer will say that. Seriously, test me out on that. Unbelievers, if you ask them, are you a sinner? They'll say, no, of course not. That's stupid. I'm not a sinner. And again that's, again, that's why a lot of people don't go to church, and especially they don't come to Trinity, because the first thing right out of the bat is we confess that we are right. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then you don't need the Lord Jesus Christ. So unbelievers, generally speaking, when they visit Trinity Church, they, they don't come back because it's a downer. And they've told me this to my face when I go visit them. I'm not coming back. Why not? Because it's such a downer. What do you mean? Well, the beginning of the service said we're all miserable sinners and we, we, we deserve God's punishment. I don't, I'm not that bad. Really? And so they have no desire for Jesus. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question. Anything else? That is correct. That is absolutely... And, and 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that God saved Noah and his family, eight in all. All the rest, no, because they did not believe. And this piggybacks on our memory work for Sunday School opening, Mark 16, 16. What condemns people? Unbelief. Jesus says, if you do not believe, you are condemned. That's correct. And back to Julie's question, well, what if you didn't get a chance to get baptized? There are, there are cases when people who are believers don't get the chance to get baptized. Are they saved? Yes. Well, who's that? Oh, are you talking about today? Oh, in Noah's day. God gave, so the question is, did they have the chance to get in the boat? No, once the flood, once the rain came, and it wasn't just rain, read Genesis very carefully, it wasn't just rain from above, but if, you, if you've been reading the news over the last decade, the scientists have discovered that there is so much fresh water underneath the earth, there's no way we can ever run out of water. In Genesis, it tells us that the floodwaters even came up from below the earth. So to answer your question is, once that came, it, it's, that's it, they're done, no chance. And that's why then Jesus, 
New Testament. I hope this is helpful for you. This is why Jesus in Matthew 24 and the parallels, Mark 13 and Luke 21, Jesus references the flood. Because the flood is a foretaste of what? The last day. Which reminds us that in Noah's day, Noah preached and preached and preached and preached. And the people said, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. And then the flood came, that was it. No second chance. And in that way, the flood is a foretaste of Judgment Day. Kuhlman preaches and preaches and preaches, and a lot of people say, no thanks. And when the last day comes, that's it. Is that helpful? Correct. And in Noah's day, we don't know for sure how far the human race extended on the face of the earth either. So Noah may have been able to preach to everybody on the earth at that time. Because this, this is before the Tower of Babel, before God scatters them, if my memory serves correctly. There was another hand. Yes. Correct. That's correct. Eight people in all. Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight in all. First Peter 3, you can check it out. All the rest. And I'll never forget growing up, I, I, the children's illustrated Bible I had, that, that story of the flood and the illustration of the floodwaters, the artist, that just, I, I, it's still in my head, of the people, you know, trying to, let us in, let us in. No, it's too late. Once the door was shut, that's it. And Jesus does this in the New Testament with his parables, remember? Remember the, the wise and unwise virgins and the unwise virgins? Let us in. Je I don't know who you are. Once the door's shut, that's it. Was it another hand? Brian, did I answer your question? Now, back to Julie. I want to. So, we know that the world is populated everywhere, and that's why Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You go and make disciples of all nations. You baptize and teach it. And so the church's job is to make sure that gets done. We are to go to all the parts of the earth to make sure that people get the opportunity to hear the gospel. This is really important, to piggyback on your point. I remember old Doc Butler at Hebron. He was the eye doctor at Hebron, and he's now with the Lord waiting for the resurrection. And Robin used to work there for Doc Butler for a while, you know. So if you ever need your glasses adjusted or anything, you know, she's the, she's the lady to see. <clears throat> but old Doc Butler would always ask that question too. Yeah, anything else? She's got the little she does, that's right. <laughs> All right, so Isaiah 42 and 53. So this is, a, this is about Jesus and the atonement. Look at verse 6 on page 2. The last part of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for what? For the sins or the transgression of the people. So what I want to do next is, based upon what we just read last week and just a little bit of review here from Isaiah 53, is show you once again that in the New Testament, the New Testament writers are very keen, and Jesus himself shows you that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 all the way through Isaiah 53. He is the servant of the Lord who takes the sin of the world in his body and answers for it. That is to say, he atones for it with his blood. So if you'll take your sheet then, and we, uh, we were at page four last week, and that's where I want to pick it up.
Again, by way of review, on page 4 you have the Acts 8 text where Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. But the eunuch doesn't know who Isaiah is talking about. So look at verse 34 on page 4. Do you see that? Almost to the middle of the page. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked, does the prophet say this? And if you want to know what he's... Right above it, verses 32 and following, do you see it? He's quoting, he's reading Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth, etc. Now that's just a portion of what he's reading. Probably he's reading the entire chapter. So you just get a snippet. Now verse... The end of verse 34, is the prophet talking about himself? In other words, is Isaiah talking about himself? Is, is it Isaiah the servant on whom the sin of the world will be laid? Or is he talking about somebody else? And notice Philip's answer, verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, namely Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about who? About Jesus. So Philip simply is telling the Ethiopian eunuch, Isaiah was writing about Jesus, his death on the cross. And by the way, then the eunuch, is, he's a believer, and then what immediately happens, what does the eunuch want? Hey, there's water here, why don't you baptize me? And he was baptized. And Philip would have done that, carrying out Matthew 28. Now, quickly again, middle of page 4 by way of review. Remember, Isaiah 42, I put my spirit upon him, I delight in my servant. Well, Jesus fulfills that. So in Jesus and him alone, God's soul delights, Isaiah 42. And Matthew 3, it is baptism, that's what the Father says. Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father says the same thing at the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, Matthew 17. Now, Israel could never fulfill that, but Jesus does. Now look at the bottom of page 4 where it says the New Testament quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, as fulfilled in Jesus. Check it out. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Let me explain that, that phrase here. Bruised reed he will not break, or a smoldering wick he will not quench. Let's say you're struggling in your faith. How's he going to treat you? He's not going to put the wick out. He's not going to break you. He's going to help you. That's the point. Have you ever struggled? Okay, that's the point. Don't, don't worry because a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Then finally, until he brings justice to victory. And this is justice. This is God's justice. This is where God justice, he does justice to sin, death, and the devil. And in his name, this is interesting here, in his name, namely in Jesus' name, the Gentiles, namely non-Jews, will put their hope. Look at page 5. That's Matthew 12, which I just read, that quotes Isaiah 42. Now page 5. The point that Matthew is making here is that Jesus is the servant prophesied in Isaiah 42, who Jesus then uses his authority 
only in the service, and this is critical, in the service of mercy. Of, of the, the reed and the wick. He will not destroy his destroyers, but instead he withdraws before their hatred. Check it out in the parentheses. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him, namely Jesus, how to destroy him. And Jesus, aware of this, what does he do? Does he say, you just wait, I'm coming after you? No, he withdraws from there. And many followed him and he healed them there. Matthew 12, 14 to 15. So what kind of servant are we dealing with? A servant who has come to have mercy. This is Matthew's point. Any questions about that? It's not to fight. So this justice language from Isaiah 42 isn't, all right, you Pharisees, you want to destroy me? I'll destroy you first. I'm coming after you. No, it's not that. He just simply backs off from those people, avoids them, and then he has mercy on people who need his help. And that summarizes his entire ministry. Is that helpful for you? About what this servant is like? Yes, please. Yeah, that's... I'm going, I'm going to quote the Bible on your point here, Mike, because it's very important. And if you've got your Bibles on the tables, go ahead and look with me. Go to Genesis. I believe it's chapter 6. I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think it's Genesis 6. Simply for the sake of time, look at verse 5. Now this is pre-flood. And now you begin to understand why God sends the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Now notice this. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil, all the time. By the way, folks, just a sidebar. Based upon what's happened here in the last week in Texas and what's happened in our country over the years, um, we as the church and you, you folks as Christians, you need to help people diagnose what's really going on. This is a sin problem and it's a Satan problem. So what's, if you can see, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, yeah, are there mental illness issues? Yes. Are there family dysfunctional issues? Yes. We can, we can. But the bottom line, and see, I'm not, I'm, the next thing I'm about ready to say is not to be political. Don't misunderstand this, but it's just simply to illustrate how the people in charge missed the point. So a lot of people think that we can solve these problems in our country about what happened in Texas is just simply passing certain legislation. Now, whether you agree with what they say or disagree, that's not my point. My point is, is that they missed the mark entirely. The church has the answer. We can diagnose what's going on here. And it's a sin problem, and it's a, it's a, satan, a satan problem. Where Satan uses, he lies. Remember, Jesus calls Satan two things in the New Testament. He is a liar, and he's a what else? A murderer. And Satan loves to use people as his instruments to lie and murder. 
And when you throw in the old sinful nature and all this, it's a, it's a powerful, destructive thing. So we can diagnose it, and now we can then begin to offer solutions. A whole different solution than the so-called bigwigs who are arguing about what to do. So we need, as the church, we need to make sure that people, our children, learn the Word of God and know who their Savior is so that they don't despair, right? We need to work on the restoration and the renewal of our families so that our children aren't suffering from things in family life that cause lots of problems, etc. Okay? And if that's happened in our life, then we need to repent and we need to do better and do the very best that we can to help our children and grandchildren. Okay? Right? These kinds of things. We need to work on this together as a church. So we, we offer the proper diagnosis, but we, all, we also have the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ to share with people in their despair. So I hope that was helpful. Well, and that, this is, I'm glad you mentioned this because this, this is how Satan lies. So what's happening, I'm going to speak in general to make my point. Uh, the person who does these crimes is the one who's not being, instead other things are blamed. Now to a certain extent, that's, there's a grain of truth to this. But bottom line, the people who commit these crimes need to be held accountable. So am I to blame for what this guy did in Texas? Well, some people would say I am. No, no, that person who killed those children and teachers, and that's the person who, who, who is responsible. Okay. So your point's well taken, and this is Satan as a liar. Deflect. Blame others. And so Adam and Eve, immediately after they sinned, and when God went to them, remember in Genesis 3? And God gives Adam the opportunity to repent? What did Adam do? So when God says, Adam, where are you? Interesting question, where are you? God knew where Adam was. But the question is, where are you in relationship to me now? That's the question. Where are you, Adam? That was the point of that question. Not, not I don't know where you are, Adam. I can't find you. Where are you? God knew where he was. It's now, where are you in relation to me? And have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat from? God is giving him the opportunity to do what? to confess his sin and ask for forgiveness. And what does Adam do being used again as a tool of Satan to tell lies and deflect? What does Adam do? He blames Eve. And notice how Adam says it. It's the woman, and notice he doesn't blame Eve. It's the woman you gave me. So Adam won't say, it's my fault. He blames, guess who? And that is the lie. And that's the bottom line of what's going on here. If you continue to... If you continue to investigate today's deflections, the lie ultimately gets down to, it's your fault, God. And then Eve, it was the devil who made me do it. Instead of saying, it's my responsibility. Now, there was another hand. Yes, Matt. Well, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Right, right, right. So we, we need to make going to church, learning the Word of God, both at church and our homes, attractive to people so that we are actually a light 
Remember, Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that you may give glory to my Father. We are to be light and salt. Salt seasons. That's why you put salt on your steak, right? Because it makes it taste good. So we're like to be salt to the world. We're to make, we're to make Jesus look good, taste good to people. And we do that as best we can. And, and the big way is to confess our sin and tell us tell, we're sinners and we desperately need Jesus for forgiveness. And that makes Christianity attractive. What doesn't make Christianity attractive is, well, it's somebody else's fault. It's not mine. Right, right, right. But this is why God sends the flood, Genesis 6, verse 5. All right, anything else? Whew. Yes, please. But we also have to stand in anguish as Christians. We can't walk through life and do things that God wants us to do and expect that God has to And that's the light and the salt. That's correct. Now, your, your point is well taken, and this pushes us right back into Isaiah 53. So either Jesus answers for, for your sin, or who else is going to have to do it? You. And this, brothers and sisters, is part of our problem in society, is that people are trying to atone for their sin. Let me give you a classic example. And here, here you're going to say, this clinches it that Kuhlman's a total geek. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson believed that he could atone for not only his own sins, but the sins that, that were committed against him, like by his father. You remember, Michael grew up and he was made fun of by his, his father and his brothers. And what was he always made fun of when he was a little boy in the Jackson 5? his big nose. He was always made fun of that. Now, just to make this long story short, is that Michael Jackson is a class, classic example of the Genesis 3, believing the Genesis 3 lie, that you shall be God. So Michael Jackson, by the way, do you know that in Gary, Indiana, where he was born and grew up, his mother was a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Did you know that? I am a total geek. <laughs> Now, what happened early on in his life is the Missouri Senate pastor there of the church they belonged committed adultery, and so mom had had it and quit, quit going to church because the pastor, as you just described, wasn't a good example. He failed in that. So she quit going to church, and guess who knocked on their door one day? The J-dubs, the Jehovah's Witnesses, knocked on their door. And then she became a Jehovah's Witness and raised her boys as J-dubs. Now, so Michael Jackson never celebrated his birthday. They never celebrated Christmas, etc., etc. It was simply a religion of the law. And so for Michael Jackson, his entire existence was to try and atone for his sin and even the sins committed against him. So much so that later on in his life, he tried to totally recreate himself in a whole different image to where you didn't know if he was black or white. You didn't know if he was a male or a female. And if you're interested, uh, you can watch some of his videos um, where you can see him. He's totally, this is, you know, remember when he was held his son over the rail when he was in London? Okay. 
And he was doing all kinds of just crazy stuff at Never Never Land, all that kind of junk that he, that he created, you know, Macaulay Culkin and all that jazz. This is, this is a person, and I'm going to make this, I'll come to the point. Either Jesus is going to be the one who answers and atones for your sin, and if you don't believe that, then you're going to have to, and it's going to end badly. And it did for him. It did for him very badly, sadly. I wish I would have had the opportunity to tell Michael, come on, come on home. Come back home to the church and trust Jesus. Because his entire existence was to reconcile, atone, recreate everything like he's God. And he had the money to do it. Some of you only have a certain amount of money where you can only recreate things top shelf kind of stuff, if you know what I mean. Or this kind of stuff, some face job stuff. But Michael had the finances to do everything. And God's mercy would have accepted that. That's right. That's the part that's the beautiful part. Yep. That's right. Finishing this point on Matthew 12, back to page 5 then. So again, Jesus, he withdraws. He doesn't capitalize on his, he will not even capitalize on his deeds of mercy to achieve fame. Check it out. Continuing Matthew 12, verse 16, and he ordered them not to make him known. Because he's what? He's the selfless servant of the Lord who goes his way of quiet service to the hopelessly distressed, like a Michael Jackson. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Matthew 12 quotes Isaiah again. That victory, mean, that, that victory means that by the power of the Spirit, Matthew 12, 18, the cause and revelation of God, his justice and mercy, will prevail and shall count for all the Gentiles. Matthew 12, verse 18, and Matthew 12, verse 21. Bottom line then, what I'm trying to teach you is that the New Testament says Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 all the way to 53. <clears throat> Jesus is the servant prophesied by Isaiah whose quiet, obedient ministry takes him through contradiction, suffering, and rejection all the way down to an atoning death for the salvation not only for the Jews but for all non-Jews, Gentiles. Now look at Acts 3. I've got it on your sheet. Listen to the language. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, notice, glorified not just Jesus, but his servant, Jesus. Do you see that? See, we read these passages in the New Testament and it just goes over our heads. I'm trying to help us understand that Acts 3 is making the point by calling Jesus God's servant, it is pointedly pointing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah here when he's called the servant. <clears throat> Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant. And who is he? Jesus. That's a direct way of saying he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 through 53. <clears throat> Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a, see it, servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Page 6. So in Isaiah 53 verse 1, we had this question asked, who has believed? Well, we do, but check it out. 
When the ransomed of the Lord, Isaiah 51 verse 11, ponder the words of this last of the servant songs, they are constrained to take off their shoes from their feet because here they stand on holy ground like Moses was told in Exodus 3 and we're standing in the holy of holies of salvation's temple. So for New Testament believers like you and me, the vision of Isaiah, namely the entire book, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, says what they feel when in the spirit they stand at the foot of the cross. How do we feel? We're penitently sorrow for our part in wounding the man of sorrows. We are humbly grateful that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all for which they should have endured. Namely, we should have endured that. But Jesus does that in our place. So the events, on the next paragraph, the events on the afternoon on a Friday we all call good and Easter morning constitute such a mysterious interaction of divine justice and divine mercy. So my point there is when you see the cross and what happens here, it is both divine justice and divine mercy. Divine justice in what way? Jesus gets what all sinners deserve. Bearing the sin of the world in his body, he gets damned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being damned, carrying the world's sin. But mercy towards you. He answered for your sin. You can't. God shows you mercy and forgiveness because of this. That's the point. So finally then, it raises the question in the minds of the proud and the self-righteous whether this, is this really the arm of the Lord? In other words, is this really God at work? And the answer, of course, is yes. We know, it, we know that to be a fact. Now, next, next time, I want to pick up on John 12 because I've run out of time. If you want to, read the entire chapter of John 12 in preparation for next time because Jesus, in his ministry, generally speaking, is not received well. In John's gospel, at the beginning of John's gospel, you have a lot of people who follow Jesus, but then as he continues more and more people begin to say, no thanks. John 6, the end of John 6 is a, a, a pretense of this, when everybody leaves except the 12. And Jesus looks at the 12 and says, what? Do you want to leave too? What's the answer? No, you have the words of eternal life, which we sing in the liturgy, by the way. But John 12, our Lord's ministry, generally speaking, is being rejected. And Jesus then says in John 12, that now I am fulfilling what happened with Isaiah. Because when Isaiah went to preach to Israel, was Isaiah received favorably? When Isaiah preached the coming of the Savior? Nope. What'd they do to Isaiah, do you remember? Read about this in Hebrews chapter uh, 11. What'd they do to Isaiah? They took a saw and they did a Texas chainsaw massacre. They sawed him in two. And Jesus in John 12 says, that is a foretaste of my ministry and what's going to happen to me. And guess what he's going to quote? Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. But that's next time that we meet. Any other questions? All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer.